Islamic fintech it's a segment of a market that you can cater to like you would cater to the millennials like you would cater to uh, a certain uh, gender similar way Muslims are a, a segment that you can cater to based on the rules that they like to follow Welcome to this episode of Banking on Air. I'm Helene Panzerino, and today I'm going to be joined by Mushir Ahmed, and we'll get him to introduce himself in a bit. And we're going to be discussing the very important topic of Islamic banking and Islamic fintech, something that I feel and that we at Vacuum feel people have some misunderstandings about. It's shrouded in a bit of mystery. People think it's for one part of the world and doesn't apply to the broader financial services. So we're hoping to unpack and demystify, shed some light and come away with some good points to take forward. So Mushi, welcome. And if you don't mind, it would be great if you could introduce yourself. You're a bit like me. We have portfolio careers and portfolio organizations we work with. So let's find out a bit more about you. Thank you, Helen, and thank you to Vacuum Labs for having me for the podcast. I'm very excited and delighted to talk to you. As you mentioned, it's an important topic that needs more attention, and we hope that we can bring that attention during this podcast. My name is Mood. I'm the founder and managing director of FinStep Asia, which is a venture builder set here in Hong Kong in Asia. We help startups and fintechs to scale into Asia or to set up their, their companies when they're doing market strategy. We also work with top corporates in scouting for startups to solve their problem statements. This ranges from across East Asia, Greater China, Southeast Asia, South Asia, and the Middle East. In addition to this, we do a lot of research on fintech topics, uh, ranging from Islamic finance, Islamic fintech, to women in fintech, and how uh, fintech is catering to the women's market. Other than that, I'm co-founder and board member of the Fintech Association of Hong Kong, and similarly a co-founder and uh, board member of the Global Impact Fintech Forum, which is a think tank made up of regulators and uh, thought leaders. And I'm also on the United Nations ESB and SCAP Entrepreneurship Task Force. It's a task force for bridging the businesses with the UN's uh, various initiatives. I am amazed that you've found the time to be with us. So thank you very much. And of course, you've touched some of the things that are really important to us in terms of identifying companies that can grow and scale and enter different regions. And of we at Back in Lab are always there helping those companies with their technology requirements, but also with their, their thought behind what they're building and why they're building it. And I think this goes back to why are you doing things and what is the understanding behind it? And as you and I discussed previously, when we're looking at doing work, for example, in MENO or in the GCC, people always associate the Islamic banking, finance, fintech with that region. And I think people don't think it's only for a certain group of people and quite a large group of people globally, which we do want to also talk about the size of the market or potential size of the market. But I do feel there's some misunderstanding around the whole topic. So why don't we start with why is it so important that we begin to take notice of it in financial services? And what is it that we're taking notice of? I think to take a step back would be to define what is the definition of Islamic countries and Islamic finance. What are we talking about? What's the landscape there? Now, we're talking about a population of about 1.8 billion people who are following the Islamic faith and uh, they live right across the world. Most people think it's restricted. It's largely in uh, MENA or the Middle East and North Africa. But in fact, seven countries, Indonesia, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Nigeria, Egypt and Iran, along with Turkey, constitute about two-thirds of the Muslim population globally. So it's not just the Middle East, but actually a lot of it is in Southeast Asia and South Asia, with India, Pakistan and Bangladesh having roughly about 600 million people who follow the Islamic faith. 
and the key is that even though the faith was originated in the middle east the religious sites are there the religion has spread globally so you have instances of large populations in uh, europe as well as in north america this is important because overall the gdp of the islamic countries is greater than 10 trillion us dollars right roughly about 12 and a half percent of the global uh, gdp and this is excluding uh, india this is for 100% or largely muslim countries and of course they have a system where a majority of the populace may be inclined to follow the sharia laws so the sharia laws are in a sense religious laws and rules on how one should live their life and also manage their day to day activities their businesses their finances so when it comes to islamic finance three main principles for us to keep in mind there, there are many more but i'm touching on a few for people to understand about finances investment and participation one is as terms are banned from interest dealing in interest related activities so it could be lending borrowing charging in interest it could be dealing in interest instruments like bonds etc so hence islamic banking is typically interest free and the idea there being that interest especially compounded interest can lead to tremendous burden and cause havoc on people's lives and businesses lives right one you don't want to earn money from uh, you don't want to be under that pressure and secondly you don't want people to be earning uh, interest money per se second is investing or dealing in businesses that are non halal halal being beyond uh, interest it things such as gambling it is things like interest based instruments alcohol things like that So if you're investing in those instruments companies or even stocks around it it's not allowed it's considered bad. Now third is about specifically around non halal products. So if you're talking about food that we eat which is halal food in some senses can be compared to kosher meat which is in terms of the process that is done for uh, sacrificing the animal and then processing the meat the health of the person and the type of foods that uh, health of the animal rather and the type of foods etc animals that you can eat but so uh, financing around those products is also uh, non is allowed but beyond the halal products you ideally don't want to be participating in that so speculation and gambling are typically banned as per sharia law so quite a few people do not take part in speculative products and processes secondly there's there may be slight differences in opinion and interpretation of speculation this is largely due to how religious leaders who are setting these laws and reviewing them as we progress through time may have slightly different views a classic example would be stock markets that exist in most if not all, of the muslim countries as well now including in saudi some people consider that stock trading can be speculative because you may just be buying a stock because you expect it to reach a certain price and you want to get out some as a speculative trader or a day trader while there is the other side of thing which is a stock is nothing but piece or share of a company and by buying that share you're participating in that company's journey and then you're earning dividend income which is fine and if you sell it a profit is a reflection of where the firm has reached right so that's one of the things that people look for so these are the main tenants and then we can go into the main financial instruments in use of islamic finance but in a sense the underlying theme is to run your businesses in a way that is not creating burden on anybody else or on yourself unnecessarily secondly you're sticking to and following your religious norms and staying away from vices such as alcohol drugs gambling etc similar across the abrahamic religions right thirdly in a sense this is ethical business practices that people can say when you're not taking interest you're not getting burden unnecessarily and you're not putting burden on other people as well 
So for example, you're talking about a profit and loss sharing agreement where if an investor puts in money into a business that's somebody else's money, the investor can take the risk of the loss while sharing the profit. So in, in the sense, let's assume I'm a business and an investor puts money into my business. They will not charge an interest on the loan that they've given to me, but they will take part in the profits that are generated. If I end up losing money, that losses are also sustained by uh, the investor. Uh, you could think of it like a VC investor in a startup where when once the profits start increasing, the VC gets dividends based on uh, as being a shareholder and profits. While if there's losses, there's a value loss and there's money eroded, right? The VC is not going to ask the startup to pay back. I'm talking about pure equity investment here. Other important element that we do see quite often is the use of Vijara concept, which is in sense in operational financial uh, leasing contracts. In case where Muslims want to follow Sharia law and avoid mortgage interest payments. What will happen is the bank, it could be an Islamic bank, it could be a traditional bank, will purchase a property and then they will lease that out to the person who wants the property and they will charge a rental every month. Now, this property is in the name of the bank, right? So the bank owns this asset rather than it being a pledge by the borrower as an asset. So the bank owns the asset, they're charging a rental fee and as time progresses, that amount is accumulated in terms of the principle that you're building out of the value of the home. So if a home is worth a million dollars and the loan has been lent and you're paying, say, $10,000 a month, you will end up in 100 months owning that housing. And that's a rental that's being charged. The bank may add a value to the house if they bought it at a million and they want to add that value, say, 200000 more. And then they will charge you a rental of $12,000 for 100 months or $10,000 for 120 months which is 10 years, at the end of 10 years, the property is yours, the bank transfers that property to you. So that's the agreement. So technically the property is, is the bank's and not yours till you have paid in full. Which only happens in repossessions usually in, in other parts of the world, right? When we look at repossessions in other parts of the world, it was more engaging when it was for all people who already have properties, right? So mortgages are, when people do remortgaging, it's uh, usually helpful if you already have a mortgage. And uh, there are other concepts in uh, Islam which benefit the borrowing, but things like takaful is less on the borrowing side. And it's a very interesting concept, which comes towards insurance. The general concept of insurance that exists in the modern day is that there is a lot of underwriting measurement of risk, right? So when underwriters are looking at risk, trying to figure out what is the risk. And based on that, the premiums are charged. Now, the payouts are not going to be necessarily equal to the amounts that have been charged in total through collected uh, premiums. That's just not from the pool. Now, to ensure that there can be returns that the insurer can have to pay up whenever there is uh, any insurance premium that is in demand, the insurance companies will go invest in different assets. Typically, these tend to be bonds, but also investment in stocks etc. Whereas in Sharia law, as for Takaful, what will happen is the insurance companies will look for compatibility with Islamic finance and Sharia law. So no interest, right? So they cannot take that money and put it into interest in instruments. Secondly, instead of being premium focused, what they will do is the insurance is given based on the pool of money that has been collected from all the participants, right? And then the insurer can charge a fee for providing the management of the insurance. And based on the pool of money, the payouts happen based on the terms of say somebody goes into hospital, they need their payment based on the pool, they will get that grading. So that's a similar to what we're seeing in some other places. But yeah, that's it's easier for people to manage that in some senses 
Yes, of course, you run the risk of if the pool of money runs out very quickly because of claims by a few people, you can then restrict the amount of claims that people are doing, but they are pulling up from the pool of money. So that helps in some senses. And if that money is not utilized, it gets moved on to the next year. So it's not like it goes away in terms of premiums when you pay in an insurance, your premium is, is gone after a year. Fund managers would probably look at like a fund management every year. There's that money payouts. Money come in, 100 people putting in a 10,000 each. You're talking about a million dollars. And then based on application, people are saying, we have a surgery, we need the money. We'll be in the hospital. Here's the money. Then they'll get that premiums that covers the insurance uh, that they've paid. So when they want to come back in, they put in more money and then participate. This sounds a little bit to me about like Lemonade, the insurance company in the US, that whole concept of everybody pooling together. And also, of course, it reminds me of the partner agreements in the Caribbean and in places like Turkey, which I will have known in my personal life from friends. But what struck me as you were talking about Takaful was there are insurance fintech, insurtechs that are following this principle. So when we're talking about partnership agreements and we're looking at insurance fintechs, Alibaba is also similar, right? Alibaba potentially was going to be the largest fintech IPO in the world till recent events. Yes. <laughs> Still likely will end up being the largest fintech IPO in the world. Will it be the biggest banking financial institution in the world post-IPO? Maybe there'll be a revaluation of their, of their stock price once they look to relist sometime in 2021. They have been building up their number of users, which runs into hundreds of millions of people in mainland China, came up with a mutual protection plan called Shanghubao. They introduced this last year. Within three months or so, they had 50 million plus customers. The way this was focused was more for critical uh, illnesses or for emergency care. Largely, you paid money into a mutual fund pool. I'm saying mutual funds in terms of general funds. Yeah. Where everybody has a way of putting your money in and charges a processing fee and the payouts are based on claims. Of course, validated claims that people do, right? So this shows you that there are more people looking at this. This was low premium. So uh, quite a few people benefited from that and they're not using that to put into other assets, etc. So there is this, in a sense, uh, Sharia is a lot about having a skin in the game. Yeah, it's sharing that risk. Yes, yeah. sharing the risk, yeah. right? Skin in the game, sharing that risk, correct? Because if you're going to be trading in a stock market, it's a similar concept to taking a share of that business and then you get paid the dividend. So if you're going to be somebody investing in stock markets and not looking to necessarily only profit from the price increase, but take the dividends, take the payouts if companies mm -hmm. are doing that and then you're a long-term shareholder, that goes very much in the philosophy of Islamic finance. So as I mentioned earlier, there are different views, but then again, you had uh, Saudi Aramco, the world's largest company, potentially by valuation, depending on where the oil prices are on a day. They were the world's largest uh, IPO when they did launch, and that's from in, in, in the Saudi market. So you can see that there is that concept of stocks that is accepted, but largely encouraged to be longer term rather than short term and speculative. And the last Islamic instrument that I want to talk about uh, briefly is Sukuk which is what uh, a lot of people may have heard about. Sukuk bonds are nothing uh, are bonds that are Sharia compliant. So think of it like a zero coupon bond, no interest. But it's like uh, Ijara, it's an ownership of assets is transferred to the holder and the asset is leased back to the insurer. And the person is now charged rent to use that asset during the time period of the bond. So at the end of the time period, when the bond reaches maturity, ownership is transferred back. There's no charging of interest and you are looking at basically a fee that may be charged for uh, processing this. 
right? You can have various ways. People are also using means of using blockchain to build out payouts because it's not uh, as complex. Interesting thing in Sukuk is so you're wondering what is the bondholder getting out of this, right? So they lend the money, they may get an asset or not. In cases where there is an asset, that's great. You can exchange that asset and you're charging a fee. It's a fixed rate of profit. So if I'm a business and I'm taking the bond, I'm saying every year I will pay you 15% of my profits, not interest. I'm saying I'll pay you 15% of my profits that I generate. So that's the kind of a fixed rate of profit agreement that comes into play in Sukuk. Do you know when you explain it and when we talk about it and we put it into the context of near negative interest rates and now other banks like HSBC, some of the challenger banks in the UK starting to charge subscription fees because how else are you you making your money, it seems to me very straightforward. We started out talking about the Sharia compliancy. I wonder if people get hung up on thinking they know it's a religious thing and start to, to confuse the actual concepts that are applicable everywhere in the world and, and make good sense. As you said in the beginning, it's all about not putting a burden on people, which we should probably want to do in financial services. We talk a lot about financial health, right? This is a lot about financial health. You're very right about it, right? People may say this is a religious thing. It is confusing concepts, etc. But it's not. It's simple. Don't we often get too stuck in looking at the overall going in too deep into the weeds and trying to figure out why is this there in terms of is it religious? Is it not? Yes, it's religious, but it's beneficial to anybody who's not following the Islamic faith as well. There's no decree or anything which prohibits people from following it. It's simple concepts that can be applied and beneficial mm. to others. Mm. For example, if you are eating vegetarian food, does that, make you, does that make you Buddhist or Hindu or otherwise? It doesn't. It's a matter of you having a choice of following a certain uh, lifestyle. In a similar way, think of it like financial health, financial lifestyle, and that's where Islamic finance kicks in. Uh, and there are a lot of models globally that are following the same concept. Let's talk about ethical uh, investing, sustainability, governance. So we are coming back to uh, those elements where people want to do more businesses ethically, follow certain patterns, certain ways of doing it, not to burden the various infrastructures that exist. And it's, it's something that I believe that as a business owner, you need funding, you're getting zero interest rate, you're having to share the profits, which is a win-win for everybody. Yes, there's a little more risk for the investor, but then again, they can set terms in a way that they get good share of the profits for the risk they're taking, but they're not burdening the owner by charging them interest. So you can balance that out fairly well, right? A few years ago, I just remember thinking, why hasn't this caught on? And again, we observe that the average age in many of the countries that you mentioned or many of the regions is late 20s, mid to late 20s, digitally adept, growing up on digital. And I'm wondering how, because Islamic banking and finance has been, of course, there for a long time. This transition into Islamic fintech, relatively new, maybe potentially more nascent part of the financial services. But will that be driven by this younger generation who are maybe you know, not as in the shadows about, for example, their religion, but also about the positive tenets that come out of it and want to put it into their products and consume the products that are speaking to unburdening and to looking after each other and to having a much better, more logical financial situation. Islamic finance, fintech is an extension. 
they're off of bringing people to say that you can follow your rules and your religious bylaws and you can do it digitally. So being able to use modern day tools and technology for financial services and not too complex. It's just adding the word Islamic to the fintech element, technology servicing Islamic finance. According to the Pew survey, the median age of Islamic world demographics was very young. It's under 30 years old. About 70-80% of the population is extremely young. And as they grow up, the key element is that the younger generation is more confident with digital services, fairly tech savvy. And it's a large population that is unbanked or haven't, hasn't entered the banking world yet. And that numbers can vary anywhere between 20% all the way to 50, 60, 70% in some countries in sub-Saharan Africa, where financial inclusion is quite a bit of an issue for the unbanked. And if you're getting them onto the bank world, you do need various instruments and you're using uh, and you want to put as little burden as possible. Going digital is no longer an option. It's something that is going to play a role globally because A, technology has rapidly increased in terms of the features that it offers and ability to reach faraway places as well. You can now buy phones at less than 50 US dollars and some of smartphones can be bought for less than 100 US dollars. So that gives you a lot more ability to do things with a much lower price, right? India is a classic example of large smartphone market at very cheap prices. And data is also becoming cheaper. So that means more people can get onboarded. In some countries, you see a case where they may have only 20-30% banked population, while about 70-80% population has a Facebook account. That's the dichotomy that can be leveraged. And that's not something that the banks are typically um, well-placed for. So in places like Southeast Asia and South Asia, there are a huge population of Muslims, but they're not really large Islamic banks, right? Some banks are large, but that's largely in the Middle East that you talk about the top Islamic banks. Some in Southeast Asia, definitely, but bigger ones are in the Middle East. So you have the typical banking infrastructure that exists, not necessarily catering to all people. It's quite similar to how incumbent banking was three to four years ago. They're very similar in the use of technology. They used IT as more of operations in back office and use in middle office, but it wasn't the differentiator at the front end. It wasn't what the customers were looking at and saying, oh, this technology of this bank is better than that. So once you had more apps, that started becoming a differentiator on how you sell yourself. Uh, a lot of big banks globally now call themselves as technology players, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, DBS, etc. Look at themselves as technology players more so than financial services. And all this has to seep down. Digital transformation is taking place. Tier 1 banks, a lot of them have already done that in developed centers. But when you look at Tier 2, Tier 3 banks, even in developed centers and major hubs, they're still evolving, they're still transforming. So banks aren't necessarily very behind everybody else. They've been in their, in a sense, in their regular zone of managing their customers, continuing their building of their customer base, but not pushing heavily and extensively on the digital front. And I feel that is going to start changing very soon because people want things almost instantly in today's world because it's possible. Then you start setting expectations when a chat transaction or a Alipay transaction or a transaction through Revolut or others can take place in a matter of seconds or in some cases instantly. You want your bank also to be able to offer the same financial services at the same time. There was this question about, oh yeah, you'd wait a few days for a delivery of a package. But if you've gone from same day delivery nowadays to two hour delivery in certain urban centers for e-commerce, it's a similar concept in finance where people want to do things quickly. So the banks have to match 
technology firms and the islamic is moving it's going to take more time it's going to take a lot of effort and but digitization of the overall banking processes and bringing them up to speed and engaging with the islamic faith full using digital tools is going to become very important it's also a matter of being able to generate new leads and new customers Our regulators are more friendlier now to digital services globally and they're setting up regulations accordingly so even the banks can leverage of those to try to gain new customers As I said, Shree, so as you're talking, I'm reminded of ENDB and Adib and, and Dubai area where they have launched at some retail and some uh, small business apps, for example. But what is the magic? What needs to happen, for example, the tier twos and tier threes to engage with the tech community, with the fintech community? Collaboration is always difficult. And we've always had these conversations around its culture and its regulation and its not being agile and its compliance and its integrating. So what will we need? to have in play for example for a vacuum labs to engage with the tier 2 tier 3 islamic bank so to engage with tier 2 tier 3 banks what we need is for companies to set up a base right for companies to engage it's a lot like being a friend right it's collaborations it's partnerships but when you talk about digital transformation and the move towards digital and mobile first there's also a huge element of education education is going to play a role and i'm not talking about islamic fintech education i'm talking about education around digital around fintech around technologies use cases about why people need to upskill that's going to become very important and that is what is most wanted even in general financial services we do hear a lot of talk about financial education and that's not different in the islamic world many people in the islamic world may be working in banks and may have had their jobs in these banks for 10 15 20 years being comfortable in the way the process is are not much changes steady growth not necessarily a big drive or push from the senior management because the assets are uh, steadily growing they're having good revenue nothing spectacular but nothing bad as well so people tend to be comfortable that culture has to change i'm not generalizing i'm not saying this is the case in every bank but this is a general case that was there with incumbents as well so now the senior management needs to think about how do we change our business lines because it's a matter of survival they need to do a top down approach so when you are a firm like vacuum labs you would first need to go and talk to these islamic banks about the opportunity that they're losing out on and why is this a big opportunity for them to look at transforming so the education piece here is the opportunity that you're missing out and i think this podcast caters a little bit to that but that's the whole element educate your client right that's an important element a lot of customer companies sometimes don't care about it they say we're offering you something just take it why do you want to know more about something educating your client means that they understand more means that they're likely to use more if they they uh, like what you're offering and uh, you should be as uh, transparent as possible with your clients so this is an opportunity so if you're able to educate your clients more about what is happening how this helps their bottom line then they will respond there's already the threat of existence not only from uh, fintechs or islamic fintechs but also from general banks who for sure are moving into the digital transformation world so if these banks are not able to update the processes and their offerings are not really strong in the digital format they will lose out they will lose out on clients they'll lose out on re- revenue and they will face existential threats covid has been a very good for a digital transformation right it's a sad impact of how it's influenced economies and devastated livelihoods and people uh, on the other hand because of the virality of the disease and the infectious nature banks regulators are all encouraging people to use more digital services and people are also more comfortable not wanting to use a bank note that may be able to carry germs for days uh, you want to do your transactions you don't want to exchange things with people you want to just do it remotely and safely from a social distancing manner 
and that's why we've seen a huge uptake on different digital services especially on the payment side etc you've seen that trading as one of the elements of investment banking and uh, banking world in general has been happening from homes due to covid-19 you can't have people on the trading floor because of the proximity and the risk of it spreading many other functions such as execution of trading regulatory parts compliance etc are all happening offline which one thought would not be possible but there is technology there's reg tech as it were and there are other uh, instruments that will allow you to do this remotely and in real time without losing some latency but people have adjusted and in in that sense now top management realizes that everything is possible from a digital perspective in terms of how quickly you can transform what pressures can be done and it will still take 3 4 5 years for everybody to be up to a scale but at that stage in 5 6 years time ant is a classic example of how technology firms will dominate financial services and banks will have to up- upgrade themselves yeah there is a tendency for complacency isn't there if no one's lighting light in the fire but i think you're right covid whether it's onboarding someone digitally as opposed to face to face making payments doing your transaction banking i see trading and buying and selling gold that that took off also because during times of uncertainty people put their money into things that are solid precious metals yeah exactly so i saw that starting to to take off as well and i think every every income institution we would say has been guilty of saying i'll get there i'll get there i'll get there but you're right if there ever was a silver lining from something that is so horrific this is it it's taught people that you can do everything remotely from the regulators understanding that to to onboard somebody digitally is okay and then to be able to do all your banking transactions that way and i think also i mentioned i'm a payment but often we think of remittances and payments in this space i mentioned gold we talked a little bit about digital banking where do you see a couple of the future channels that would suit islamic fintech so when we look at the future channels that suit islamic fintech yes payments is fairly straightforward in some senses it's an exchange of money right it's a, it's a transaction and if there's no interest element to it is not much you're going to see in terms of innovation from an islamic fintech perspective i'm talking about customer payments uh, that somebody is making on a retail side uh, you may have some advancements when it comes to use of islamic fintech from trade finance perspective but the ones that i feel that will come into play are things like asset lending right in such times when people are struggling to have uh, any money you seeing moratoriums by governments on interest and loans etc it falls classically in the islamic finance space and if the islamic fintechs are able to capitalize on something similar they will then show people that they can do the same thing without being necessarily in the mainstream financial services and at a better end result for them because of lower interest and in addition i feel insurance is going to play a big role we are in an aging world i was talking to somebody about a 100 year life and they were telling me that's old news now it's 120 year life in places like hong kong lifespans can go up to late 80s average lifespan for women is 89 for men around mid 80s so we are looking at people already planning for a 100 year life and beyond and whereas on the islamic world as we mentioned previously they are quite young the majority of them are uh, under 30 and as healthcare improves as their lives improve in terms of nutrition and all the other things that come with the increased prosperity they will live long as well so we're talking about a young population that has a long lifespan ahead of them and who are digitally quite savvy and they will need insurance and if they are believers of the islamic faith and strict believers uh, in particular they will want to use takaful right they don't want to use the standard insurance products so from that perspective i think takaful could be one that would gain good traction and islamic fintechs or insurtechs as you would call them coming into that space can uh, benefit mm-hmm. from there and 
we have to keep in mind uh, it's going to be unsustainable the current model that we have in terms of public health care etc governments have planned pensions and provident funds etc based on a life lifespan of maybe 60 70 years you work for 30 years 35 years you pay us that amount and beyond that we take care of you expecting that the payouts are going to be 15 years but now it can be much more so are they set up for it not really and they already is a huge debt burden that the global economy has and countries are in 200 300% debt wow uh, the us has also got a significant debt more than 100% japan's got 200 300% developing economies have 150 200% so not sustainable so there has to be a cure for that and this is where lending elements are going to be important once interest rates start going up you're going to start seeing that a lot of companies are going to struggle to pay back this uh, compounded interest element and this is where islamic fintech lending firms can come in because they can help from a ethical banking perspective uh, and they can help in terms of growth of the lending books that they have because they are looking to work off a, a model that does not charge interest and might be a lot a lot more attractive to people now one of the things that we should think about is the corridors what are the things that we see as islamic fintech yes from banking verticals is important but also geographical corridors i think are going to be very important largely because in the beginning when we spoke about it, we've had a lot of focus on religion as much as it's a word of god and has been written that and you know with the belief in the islamic world that one word in the quran has been there for uh, 1400 words the word of the quran is still applies and is the same as it was but it's a language it was written in arabic it was written 1400 years in a specific way and an interpretation is important and now sharia law is derived from the rules that the quran states it's derived from the prophet's life and from the scholars that were there around the prophet and in the early times of islam the countries that we're looking at this corridors are going to be important right earlier it was as looking at middle east but now we have to see this corridor that's going to be built between middle east and southeast asia and then africa that's going to be important because i see that there's going to be quite a bit of flow on fintech from that side classic example is indonesia and malaysia both the regulators have set up uh, fintech hubs uh, as well as fintech frameworks and that they would look to accelerate middle east is doing the same oman dubai abu dhabi saudi are all working on things like that so that's that i see as a good bridge that will uh, accelerate uh, fintech in the region When we look at the Islamic faith, the five regions that I mentioned above previously, let's look at just populations. Right? These are young populations that I repeatedly mentioned, and it's the ecosystem that's growing. Uptake on digital and fintech is transforming tremendously, and the regulators are weighing in positively. That's number one. So Southeast Asia is, I would say, is the core of Islamic fintech right now, where there'll be a lot of growth that I expect. Second region is South Asia, as I said, six fifty million Muslims in three countries. Not much Islamic banking happening necessarily, and I expect that to grow. third is the middle east so we're moving geographically from east to west then you go into beyond north africa into the rest of africa and then you have western europe where there are a decent number of islamic muslims in those countries and it's just didn't give me enough final number of islamic fintechs has grown it's around 120 to 130 some of them are in western europe in some cases in canada as well reasons are regulations and policy in uk fc has been very forward looking and uh, because you see a lot of fintech growing that extends into islamic fintech as well and more people uh, who follow that faith are uh, a target segment and that's how it should be looked at it's a segment of a market that you can cater to like you would cater to the millennials like you would cater to uh, a certain gender similar way muslims are a, a segment that you can cater to based on the rules that they like to follow digital is changing things we've seen that even if you are having technology at your disposal culture is important in terms of adoption classic case is hong kong which was fully banked and we have a smartphone penetration of 
240%, which is two and a half phones for everybody and then 10 phones for our taxi driver. <laughs> going to say something's wrong there when you have too many phones right <laughs> that's another podcast and everybody is going to be upgrading very soon i saw iphone trailers in stores and I, i'm sure it's sold out but the key there being when it comes to adoption of fintech hong kong was quite low two years ago in the 30s as per the ey fintech index and now when we look at people that's gone up to 67 percent and growing it wasn't the case that people didn't have the devices it was just a culturally they were not comfortable with using uh, mobile phones and online banking uh, as much as they are now and some of it is due to uh, instruments that have come up a large amount of it is due to policy change so policy makes a big difference the regulators in hong kong brought in virtual banking licenses to adopt mm. and drive more digital services but it's also about financial inclusion to onboard more SMEs who are underbanked, not unbanked, but underbanked largely. Of course. And this has led to major banks cutting fees and it's been really good for the overall ecosystem, right? You have them seeing cancel, no balance fees, etc. And banks are putting in billions of dollars to uh, up their digital gear because they're going to be taking on a large amount of competition from the technology players. For example, Ant has a virtual bank in Hong Kong. Pingan One Connect has a virtual bank in Hong Kong. Jongan has a virtual bank. Tencent is working on one. Yeah. The others. Same with Baidu and JD. So you got, not Baidu, sorry, with JD. So you see that they are quite a few significant players and then you have homegrown uh, players such as VLAB so technology players are coming in you have insurers coming into this space as well hence Middle East regulators are following a similar path Indonesia and in Southeast Asia and Malaysia are doing the same you have more accelerators that are supported by the regulators more hackathons their con- their engagement in GFIN and other regulatory bodies for innovation is increasing and lastly we also seeing a lot of government grants beyond what's been supported for COVID but for innovation yeah. for fintech yeah. and for companies to build I agree with you on that as well and I think if you look back to 2015-16 when we were just starting to see for example in the MENA region this starting to happen for me the speed and I think that's also because there is very little legacy in any way Way to hinder progress and innovation, whether it's technology or it's silo systems, or as we said, it's a very young population that's a forward-looking and digitally adept population. Some of the key things are in place. The regulator came along. And also, I think decisions are made with my feeling is with a lot of logic sometimes. We could always throw that whole uh, chestnut in of data is the new oil. And there was a need to switch direction in some of the regions as well and to start uh, STEM education a lot earlier, for example. And I know there in Oman where women and many more women in the STEM education that's another agenda as you're involved in that's come to the fore and created many more fintechs in the space the initiatives in the Middle East are definitely increasing with the urge to become digital hubs fintech hubs blockchain hubs whichever ones you want to apply depending on the cities uh, or countries you're looking at and it's not just about Dubai being the hip kid on the block and yes. do it. Abu Dhabi right next door is building a whole frameworks around it. Sama has been working around it. In Saudi, Oman is doing it. Egypt is doing so. I think Middle East is definitely picking up and you will, I see from an investment perspective on Islamic fintech, I do see a lot of drive coming through from uh, the Middle East where we do have uh, large family offices and investors yeah. based and uh, they may be willing to take that investment risk on things. So I feel like it did move very quickly. Gosh, I could talk to you for hours and hours, and I'm sure we're going to have you back on a podcast. We've broken all the rules. We've mixed politics and religion and money. We did as people tell you not to do, right? We should have done that. But I actually feel in doing this, we've come out, and, and I hope that all of our listeners feel that I feel. The world is changing. And I think it's the right time for people to be understanding what you're trying to explain today. 
Well, sure, I have to ask you one more thing because we ask everybody on the podcast if you could explain it to your grandmother or in this case, yeah. probably my grandmother because I think your grandmother would understand what Islamic fintech is. In a couple of sentences, what would be the highlights of Nana? This is what Islamic fintech is. Sure, Nana's in the kitchen baking and listening to me on top of that. Uh, it's a simple thing if you have to explain to people. In my mind, it maybe I'm simplifying it too much. It's about the ability to bank digitally, and it's about the ability to do it ethically using a platform that follows Sharia law. I think it's just straightforward element, right? This is a process that involves zero interest, involves ensuring that there is no burden that is put up on one party it's shared between the investor and the borrower and then everybody is able to build uh, together right from a company's perspective that's i think a key message it's collective it's community in in some senses right it's an engagement of everybody and there's an equal participation so when i feel pain the other person also feels pain it's not just me feeling the pain and when i profit the other person also profits so it's a shared community sense of things and it is the e of the esg and also in some senses g as well and it's something that a lot of islamic banking talk about and talk about is ethical banking and that's the way it is right and in this way we're we're simplifying it for everybody because i think that's the other thing people assume it's very complicated and of course on the scholastic side it is very complicated but for us to understand and to engage and to embrace it's you've done a very straightforward simple explanation i think that we are out of time for today but i honestly could just carry on this conversation for hours i love the whole topic i think the depth and the breadth of it is amazing and you are so knowledgeable i've learned a lot as well on this helen while doing a research on islamic fintech on looking at the market etc being a muslim doesn't automatically qualify you to know islamic rules in depth i think you learn as you grow and then more you explore you understand more and the key message that i would leave for somebody is that just treat it as a segment of the market don't think of what the religious needs are don't overthink it right this does not require you to follow islamic faith it's something that you can benefit from so take the benefit from it right how can you help businesses how can you participate in a 1.8 billion market i think that's the key element that fintechs can look at so the market is going to grow the anything around the halal economy will continue to grow and the companies should be able to capitalize on it and they will have a big growth as we see more people involved in the space and wanting to do this extensively mushir ahmed fintech asia thank you to everyone who's been listening and who joined us we'll see you on our next podcast bye